question for you to ponder as we get started today. What does it mean to worship and praise God? We have a a service time every Sunday. We call this our our gathered worship, our our Sunday morning worship service. And I guess it would be easy to conclude that worship is kind of an event that happens on the church calendar. Sunday morning, 1030, that's worship. And hopefully we have worship this morning. Hopefully we do worship through the remainder of our time as we hear the word of God. But I think we we intuitively understand worship is more than just an activity we do on Sundays. But, But what is it? Why is it that we go about worshiping God? You know, for many people, worship is driven by sort of superstitious fear. I better do something for God so he doesn't strike me down. Right, that's sort of the idea behind a lot of sort of pagan religions, whether you go to, to sort of ancient cultures where you've got to offer a sacrifice and cut a beating heart out of somebody's chest to placate the gods, where the idea of worship is tied to superstition, is tied to fear. A lot of times, people have this idea of worship that is driven by this idea that we we have to do something to sort of placate God or earn God's favor. We do something for God, and God does something for us. Offer a sacrifice. Pray a certain number of prayers. Go through the rosary. Spin a prayer wheel. Donate some money. Or simply show up. I think sometimes we get the idea that by coming to church, I'm doing God kind of a service, and therefore I have now earned God's blessing for the next six days because I should have acknowledged him on the, on the first of the seven. On the other end of the spectrum, people view worship not about what they do for God, but sort of what they can get from God. Maybe if I come to church, I can kind of get an emotional high from the music, whether that is sort of a feeling of transcendence I get as the organ plays and as the light streams in through the stained glass window or as the the, the candle begins to burn as we get the smells and the bells that are going on. Or maybe the emotional high comes from the lights all being turned off and the band really amping things up and the, the louder the volume is, the more relevant somehow the Holy Spirit is. Maybe it's about sort of enjoying a well-produced spectacle of some kind and hearing an uplifting talk and sort of going on with my life feeling like my batteries are recharged. But what if worship is about neither of these? What if worship is about neither trying to placate God nor about sort of trying to sort of have my immediate needs met? What if worship is very simply celebrating God for who he is? What if worship is simply falling down before a God who has revealed himself to us in creation and in scripture and most preeminently through the gospel of Jesus Christ? What if worship is not about a feeling, not about an emotion, like, man, I don't know if I really worship today. What if it has nothing to do with how you feel, but everything to do with responding to who God is? Psalm 33 gives us a a glimpse of genuine worship. And not so much as defining it, but telling us why we should worship. Maybe we agree on what worship is. Okay, worship is responding to God in sort of joy and humility and reverence. But why should I worship God? Maybe you could say, well, we worship God because he commands us to worship him. And so I'm just going to go through the motions and I'm going to stand up and sit down and that'll be it. Why should we worship? Follow along as we begin working our way through Psalm 33. Listen to these opening, this opening call to worship. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous. So right out of the gates, we cannot reduce worship to simply something I mechanically do of it's duty and I better not have my feeling. No, it's a call to rejoice in God. 
So if my affections are not engaged in worship, I'm not really worshiping. I'm just sort of going through the motions. Okay, so rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely or fitting for the upright. Praise the Lord with the harp. Sing unto him with a psaltery and upon an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song and play skillfully with a loud noise. We get this opening call to worship that gives us this panorama of of terms that are calling God's people together to sing to him, to praise him, to celebrate him. Now, here's how the psalm is put together. Verses 1, 2, and 3 give us this opening call to worship. And then verses 20 through 22 give us this response to God. Our soul waiteth for the Lord, for he is our help and shield. It goes on to to express confidence in God. What stands in between in verses 4 to 19 are the reasons why we should do what verses 1 to 3 tell us. Why should I rejoice in God? Why should I delight in God? Well, verse 4. 4. Here's the ground. Here's the basis. Here's the logic of the psalm. Okay, call to worship, verses 1 to 3. Now, here's why. And what we get from verse 4 all the way down to verse 19 are a series of reasons, of motivations, of attributes of God that the psalmist brings on display to say, here's why you should worship God. Not just, I've got to grit my teeth and do it, or I'm going to try to get something out of God to placate him or earn his blessing. But we worship God because of God. We worship God because God is worthy of worship. begins in verse 4. The word of the Lord is upright, and all his works are done in truth. So we come into the month of November. Later on in this month, we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. Such an awesome holiday. You get to eat food and family gets together and a time where we really stop and reflect on, on what God has done for us. You know, here's the irony is our Christian holidays have become very secular. Like Christmas is sort of about presents. Um, but Thanksgiving, which is really not a, you know, it's not a biblically mandated, we're not celebrating something in the Bible, has just suffused with Christian themes that everything we have comes from God and we're giving him glory. It's one of the most Christian holidays of the year. Uh, even though its origins are not explicitly Christian, are not like responding to here's a Bible event, the birth of Jesus or the resurrection. It is expressing something that is intensely biblical. So what we're going to do with this psalm series, we, we, we've talked about a lot of the psalms of lament. In sort of September and October, we went through responding to sort of hardship, suffering in our lives. As we come into the month of November, I want to look at the psalms of praise and thanksgiving to really prepare our hearts, prime our hearts for the celebration of Thanksgiving. So we don't just sort of roll in on Thanksgiving to be like, hmm, let me think about 10 things I'm thankful for, but to have a whole month to meditate on the grandeur and the glory and the majesty of God as the primary basis for thanking him. So let's look at some reasons why we should thank God. Here, here's the first reason. You praise God for his perfection. Just simply for who he is. That's what's expressed in verses 1, 2, and 3. So we get rejoice in the Lord. Simply who he is, the I am, the the unchanging, eternal God. That's all wrapped up in that title, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. The I am that I am. The God who is, the God who is sufficient, the God who is unchanging, the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Rejoice in him. You simply praise him for his perfection. Or if you want some, a different word, his character, his attributes, who he is. Now, a couple of thoughts here from these first three verses. This praise of God's perfection is, first off, it is corporate praise. We don't really see this in the, come through in the English, but these verbs are all plural verbs. 
So it's like all y'all rejoice in the Lord. All right, praise the Lord. It's not just saying to me as an individual out on my boat or up in the tree stand, but it's us as the people of God gathered together to praise God. That word translated rejoice, by the way, literally has the idea of yell or, or shout. There's emotion in this. There is affection in this. There is excitement in this. It's passionate. It is joyful. It's undignified. It's happy. It's exuberant. If your idea of worship is we're all very buttoned up, we never get too excited about anything, you'd probably have a hard time with the kind of worship that was going on in Psalm 33. It's okay to be excited. In fact, it's good and it's right for our affections and emotions to be involved in this. In the Psalms, we see worship expressed through clapping. We see worship expressed with the raising of hands. We even see worship, I know we're Baptists, but praise him in the dance. Ooh, okay, that, I'll get off that landmine. Shouting out amen. Uh, now, of course, you want to do things decently and in order. If our expressions of worship are distracting and putting the attention on us, we're not really worshiping anymore. We're making ourselves into a spectacle. So we've got to be aware of that. There are ways that you can worship that become all about you. Um, but the point being, our heart is involved. This is a response to the perfect character of God. Which means this, you cannot really worship God without a revelation of God, right? You can't really worship a God you don't really, you don't really know. You don't really know anything about because this is a, if I don't know who the Lord is, why should I celebrate him? Why should I sing to him? Why should I shout? Why should there be this excitement, this joy? That's why we cannot separate worship from the word. Word and worship go together. By the way, worship is not just singing. It is our response to the glory and majesty of God. And that even happens while we are listening to the word being taught and read. Now, the verse goes on to say, praise is comely, is fitting for the righteous. It's it's fitting, it's it's beautiful, it is right, it is appropriate, it is what we were made for. It's what we were made for. It's fitting like when you pull out your your old baseball glove that's shaped to your hand and you're like, "This this is just right, this is what this was made for. It's fitting like... Bacon going with, with eggs, or really with, with anything for that matter. It's, it's fitting like chocolate on ice cream. It just, it just goes well together. That's the idea. It's fitting. It is appropriate. Now, notice these terms. It says, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, for praise is comely for the, the upright. Specifically, those who most readily and most accurately worship God are those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be righteous, to be upright? Well, we've got to look back. Look just the verse right before, Psalm 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Whoever put the Psalm, the book of Psalms together deliberately put Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 right next to each other. We are not righteous because we are better than other people. We are not upright because we are more morally well-behaved than other people. If you were here last week, what is it that makes us righteous? It is the forgiveness and the pardon of God. So what this is saying is if you have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, shout for joy and sing to God with with joy with his people. You righteous, you upright, you Christians come together. It's significant that this is in the plural. Worship is something, yes, you should be worshiping God on your own Monday through Saturday. As you read the word and as you pray to him. But it is good and right and necessary for God's people to come together, at least on a weekly basis, to sing and to celebrate and to worship him together. 
It's a team sport. You can no more worship God fully just by yourself than one person without anyone else on the football field can win the football game. It's, a, it's something where the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, the assembly exalts and celebrates him together. And we go on to verse 2. We get something about not just who's doing the praising, but we find out how the praising is gone, being done. Praise the Lord with harp, sing unto him with the psaltery of ten strings. So he mentions two instruments. The, the, the lyre is the idea of the word harp, and this ten-stringed instrument. He's just grabbing two of them. You can almost see the psalmist looking at the Levitical orchestra at the temple and being like, the, the, the harp, the, the ten-stringed instrument. This sort of represents all instruments. God wants not only corporate praise, but musical praise. Not just the singing with our voice, but singing with instruments. The means of our worship, it's diverse. It employs both singing and instrumentation. Get a sense of this. Pop over to Psalm 150. Um, I love Psalm 150 because it just starts pulling in all of these different instruments and means by which we can praise God. Psalm 150, verse 3. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and the harp. So you're, you're kind of your wind instruments. The, the trumpet would have been a, a shofar in that time, so don't think like, you know, brass. Um, praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise him upon the loud cymbals and praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord, praise ye the Lord. Now, this is not giving us a list of these are the only instruments you can use when you come to church. But the idea here is any instrument, every instrument that's been invented anywhere in history should be utilized to the glory and the praise of God. So you can go to, go to Australia and you get the didgeridoo. That's fun to say. The didgeridoo should be used to the praise of God because God wants the, the people of Australia to praise him. Or if you go somewhere in Africa and there's some instrument we've never heard of, God wants to redeem those people and that instrument for his praise and for his glory. Everything that has breath, let it praise the, praise the Lord. God wants to be worshipped by every instrument from David's simple harp to the most elaborate instrument. I mean, the piano is a pretty elaborate instrument. So how can we use these to the glory of God? Now, verse 3 goes on to say something else about our praise. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. They're not simply going back to say, you know what, that one song that Moses wrote... In Exodus 15, that's the only song we're going to use in the worship of God. You know why we sing to God with a new song? Is every generation ought to be having a fresh experience of the grace of God. Every generation. God did not stop working with, at a certain point in history and saying, at that point the, the hymnal is closed and no more music needs to be written. Every generation should be writing a, a, a new song, a fresh song, to express the timeless, unchanging truth of who God is. What never changes is the theology. What never changes is the gospel. What never changes is truth. But the way it can be presented is going to change from one generation to the next generation as we go along. Our song should be new. Our playing, it says in verse 3, should be skillful. Because God's work is ongoing, our worship should be fresh. Put it this way, the hymnal has no back cover. I mean, it literally does in the pew there. But what I mean by that is we should always be looking and learning and writing and singing songs that express who, the glory of the gospel in a way that is fresh, in a way that is new. So it's okay, sing to him with a new song, play skillfully with a loud noise. 
We don't just sort of show up and be like, well, whatever, whatever happens, what happens, it's just church. We ought to bring our most excellent ability to the worship of God. We should be doing everything with the, the greatest excellence, the greatest ability that God has given to us. What we do in the worship of God should be well-prepared, should be well-practiced, it should be prayed over, it should be offered as a sacrifice to the King of Heaven. Imagine with me that you were invited to, to sing or to play or to perform before somebody incredibly important. You get an invitation to, to, to play your instrument at the White House or to sing. You're not just going to show up and be like, well, whatever, we're going to just kind of do whatever, nonchalant about it. No, you would be well-prepared because of who it's being offered to. Our worship, beloved, when we come to sing as a church on Sunday, we are singing to the high king of heaven. No greater audience could be imagined than God Almighty. So we want to do it well. We want to do it with, with all of our heart and sing to him with a loud noise. You know, volume is not a bad thing. The point here is we praise God for his perfection. All of this corporate, musical, excellent worship flows out of the fact that our God has revealed himself, and the God who has revealed himself is awesome. The God who has revealed himself is perfect. The God who has revealed himself is so infinite, so majestic, that we will never plumb the depths of his glory. It's like a multifaceted diamond that you will never cease exhausting. For all of eternity, we will sing in praise to this God, never running out of things to praise him, Four. Now we move into verse 4 and we begin to see a second reason. And these sort of cascade from one to the next, kind of like water flowing down a waterfall. We not only praise God for his perfection, that's foundational. We praise him secondly for his power. Specifically his power in creating the world with just a word. Okay, You and I have got to build stuff. We don't just say, let there be a shed in my backyard and boom there was. Right? Even if you have, like, you've hired contractors and you say, build a shed for me in the backyard, six months later they're still waiting on materials and permits and all these things. We, we just don't have that kind of power. But listen to, listen to this comparison to God. For the word of the Lord is right. Now we're talking about the word of the Lord here. I think our minds normally think about the Bible. Here we're thinking about God's sort of decree and creating. And all his works are done in truth. So notice how word and work are parallel, this, this parallel structure. It's the thing that God says that then brings about a result. So God says, let there be light, and what? There was light. That's the idea. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. So you think about all of space and all of its expanse. Just God's word. And all the host of them, okay, what inhabits the heaven? The stars. You think about a massive star like Betelgeuse. You think about galaxies like the Milky Way. You think about stars that we have not even seen and nebula that have, have yet to be discovered. The text says, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. With just a word, stars, galaxies are created. Now, using anthropomorphic language, what this means, okay, God doesn't have a body, there's not literally a mouth. It's giving us the idea that God simply speaks, he simply decrees, and the entire universe is created. That is power. When you can simply say the word, 
and there's the universe. You say the word, and there's a galaxy. You say the word, and there's the, the, word, the, the world full of the rich diversity of animals and plants and insects. We're sort of riffing on Genesis 1. And God said, and God said, and God said. Reread Genesis 1, and you get that refrain over and over again. This is not like the creation myths of the Babylonians where the gods have to go kill someone and then take their blood and then mix it with the dirt and then go create something. Our God creates out of nothing. It's not like there's this sort of this pile of matter out there that's somehow eternal that he works with and a big bang. No, no, no. He simply speaks and all of reality is. We praise him for his power. Now, verses 3 and 4 are going to or verses 4 and 5, are going to emphasize the, the moral quality of God's decrees. What God decrees, what God ordains, is always right. The idea of truth is the idea of it being steadfast. What God decrees is not going to change and be altered by anything that we do. And God loves righteousness and judgment. This is his character. The things that God sets out to do agree with who he is. And this is incredible. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Even though we know all of creation because of Adam and Eve's sin is under the curse, even though we're in a world where there is a lot of death, a lot of suffering, yet we see little glimpses of God's grace. That's that word goodness, God's grace. Theologians call it God's common grace. It's available to, to everyone. It means this, that the world is never going to be as fully bad and corrupt as it could be. God's grace and man's sin, fallenness and goodness run on parallel tracks. So the same world where there's death and, and decay, we get beautiful sunrises. We get changing seasons. We get scientists with amazing gifts where they're able to sort of cure diseases and alleviate suffering. Every flower you look at is an expression of God's goodness. He could have made this world be incredibly drab and boring and miserable, yet he fills it with color. God throws creatures in the ocean that people didn't even know about until they got submarines and went down there to look, and there's these incredible creatures that are out there. The James Webb Telescope just discovered another nebula out there that, I can't remember what they called it, but it looks like a hand. It's just been out there. God created it thousands of years ago. It's just sitting there. Nobody even knows about it except for God, and he's enjoying his creation. So I'm just going to leave this here for you all to find and to discover, to see my majesty and my glory. The whole universe is just a cathedral for the majesty and the glory and the grace and the goodness of God. He makes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Blessings for all of his creatures. For in him we live and move and have our being. If there's life anywhere, God is the one who gave that. Psalm 104 tells us he's the one who makes the grass to grow. We call this photosynthesis. Yes, God is the one who sets that process up and works through that process. He's the one who feeds every animal that we, we get to eat and enjoy. All of it comes from him. So God's powerful creating word reflects his character and his goodness. Think about all of the things that are in our creation that are absolutely unnecessary. They're not actually doing anything of functional value. They're just there for, if you will, decoration. You know what that tells us about our God? Is we have a God who delights in superabundance, a God who delights in generosity, a God who loves to do above and beyond what is merely needed or utilitarian. 
It's the beauty of this world. Praise him for his power, this powerful word that reveals himself, this powerful word that created with just a word. I, I, I love the language in verse 7. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as in heap. He's literally, you, you ever try to pile water up? Like, it doesn't really work. But the, the image here is God can do that. He piles water up. The language here comes from, from Exodus 15. When Israel goes through the Red Sea and God heaps the water up on every side. You and I can't do that. But God can. He's created a boundary in Genesis 1 between the, the, the land and the sea. And boundaries of the, the, the sea will not cross no matter what Al Gore says. He's all-powerful. He is the supreme one. Look at verses 8 and 9, continuing on with his power. What's the response? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Now, this is, this is pretty sweet. The first three verses are like, people who believe in God, you need to worship him. But now the call is expanding even further. Like, y'all who are outside the four walls of the church, those of you who are beyond the borders of Israel, those of you who are not yet in the kingdom of God, you need to worship and fear and bow down before this God. That was the call to worship we began with. Every nation and tongue and people needs to worship and admire this God who created everything. Why? For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The sense of this in the Hebrew is he spake, and it is. He commanded, and it stands. The idea here is not just what God did back on the days of the creation week, but what God continues to do to uphold and to sustain his creation. God speaks, the world is. It endures. One of the verses that Jim read, Colossians 1.17, speaking of Jesus, uh, don't forget that the creation was an act of the triune God. The Father plans it, the Son is the one who executes it, the Spirit's hovering over the, the face of the waters, all three persons of the Trinity involved in the creation of the world. Colossians 1.17 says that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is it that keeps, the, keeps atoms together? Like the strong nuclear force. Like what is going on there? The negative electrons and, and positive protons and all of these things going on. It's God who holds it all together. What is it that makes gravity always work in the way that gravity works? Why is it, why is it that light is a constant? Scientists will look at it and call these things the laws of nature because they are so dependable. They operate as these consistent things that we can say, this is the, this unchanging constant. The reason why there are unchanging constants in our universe is there, an un, there is an unchanging God upholding this universe. The entire enterprise of science assumes the fact that our universe is stable. And our universe is stable because we have a God who speaks and it is, who commands and it endures. Now, the response to this is, is verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let me just come back to this point. The creation, the world in which we live, is a call to worship. It is a call to all people everywhere to acknowledge the creator God. To stand in the midst of creation, to, to observe the complexity of the human body, to be aware of the incredible Incredible amount of information that's packed into DNA. To, to, to stand in the middle of creation and to de deny the existence of God is like standing in an art gallery 
admiring beautiful art and denying that there is an artist who exists. It is insanity. It's like marveling at architecture without considering the architect or the fact that somebody built the building. It's like listening to a symphony while denying the existence of both the composer and the musicians. That is why we are without excuse if we don't worship and we don't bow the knee in faith and repentance to this God because he has revealed himself in his creation. Even those who deny God, deny God only because God holds them. There was a theologian by the name of Cornelius Van Til. Um, it's a fun name. It doesn't really matter that's him, but it's just a fun name to say. But he was observing on his train ride into to the seminary where he taught a child sitting on his father's knee, slapping his dad in the face kind of playfully. And he reflected on that and said, the, re, you know, the reality, people who deny God can only do so because they're, in a sense, sitting on his lap. Only because God is actually upholding us and God has created this world. It's only because God has given us these resources to look at this world and to reason that people sort of take those and try to turn them on God. The very fact they do so assumes that God exists. This powerful word that sustains that governs this world, calls us to praise God. Praise God because of his perfection, that he simply is. Praise him for his power that is displayed, his wisdom that is displayed, his eternality that is displayed in this amazing exhibit of his glory that we call creation or nature. We come along to verses 10 to 12, we see a third reason to praise God. I'm going to call this his purposes, or if you want the word plans. See, God not only rules over creation, it's not that God creates and that's it, and then sort of he leaves humans to do what humans are going to do. God actively works in history. The Lord, the, the Lord bringeth to naught, okay, the idea is frustrates or destroys the counsel of the heathen. He maketh the devices of the people to none, of, none effect. So the idea here is the, the nations and the peoples of the world, who would have been opponents of Israel in the, in the Old Testament, who maybe come up with schemes and plans for world domination, for conquering the people of God. Because God takes all of those plans laid by the most brilliant of generals and the most ambitious of kings, and he can frustrate them in an instant. Nobody can do anything outside of the plan or purpose of God. That's what this verse is asserting. That God thwarts human plans. But verse 11 says, humans do not, cannot thwart the plans of God. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever thoughts of his heart to all generations. You see, God has complete mastery over history. I'm talking about God's will, God's plans, God's purposes. Psalm 2, in fact, let's just go over to Psalm 2, talks about the same idea. Psalm 2 says, why do the heathen, that's the same word, the people who don't know God, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So the heathen are coming up with these plans to, to, against God. The kings of this earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. So these same words of people making plans and coming up with schemes and doing what they want to do against the Lord and against his anointed. People rebelling, shaking the fist against God. We can think about the Tower of Babel as an example. Or in David's context, the nation surrounding me, like, how can we get rid of David? saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. How can we get rid of God? Verse 4, he that sitteth in the heavens, this God, shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Ultimately, this finds its fulfillment at the cross of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, the 
apostles are praying after a, a round of persecution, and they quote this verse. So everything that happened at the cross, you had the Jewish religious leaders, you had the Roman imperial leaders, you had the local Herodian puppet kings all coming together, and they, couldn't, they could not agree on the color of the sky. But they all agreed on the fact that they wanted to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. And there's a huge conspiracy to get rid of Jesus that involves one of his disciples handing him over to betray him and a certain time and, and all of the complexities and having trials in the middle of the night. And they thought they'd gotten one over. And they do whatever God ordained for them to do. Yet God overrode and completely smashed their plans three days later with Jesus rising again from the dead. And that, by the way, was not a plan B on God's part. That was not God being like, Oh, oh, man, they just crucified my son. What am I going to do? I better raise him from the dead. That was the plan from eternity to raise Jesus from the dead and to crush the plans and the opposition of the nations to the glory of God. Now, this is a good reminder for us because sometimes as God's people, we can be discouraged by what we see happening in our world. We can even become fearful. You turn on the news and you hear about stuff, Washington, D.C., and what's happening in Montgomery, Alabama, and crime in the city of Mobile, and... Israel and Gaza and Russia, Ukraine, and, and all of these things happening in our world, and we begin to fret or lash out in anger, lash out in fear or retreat to a bunker. These verses remind us there's a God in heaven who controls every detail of history. The very fact that the Roman Empire existed when Jesus was born and when the gospel went out was part of God's plan. If God controls the fate of empires, does it not follow that he is also sovereign over your life and my life? Does it not follow that the plans that we think that we're making independently of God, we, we can't do anything independently of God. We would do better, as James tells us, to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. All of our plans are subject to the plan of God. Everything he promises, he's going to fulfill. Everything he decrees, he will bring about. There will be nothing of God's desired, his decree that will be left undone when history is finished. God's not going to look back on history with regrets. Being like, man, I really tried my best to do X, Y, or Z, and I just couldn't quite. God will have his way. Now, verse 12 brings us down, down to applying it to Israel. So notice verse 10 had used the word heathen and people. The idea is the nations and the peoples are the Hebrew words. Now notice verse 12 contrasts the nations and the peoples with blessed is the nation, singular, whose God is the Lord, and the people, singular, whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. This is, of course, speaking of Israel. As they would have sung, they would have thought about all the plans of the nations around us, all the things they want to do. God overrides, but blessed is the nation, whose God is the Lord. There's only, there's only one ethnic nation in human history of, of which this was true. It was Israel. Okay, we're, we're not Israel. No other nation is Israel. Israel is Israel. In the Old Testament, God had chosen them from among all the nations of the earth to be his. In fact, Deuteronomy 7 makes the same point. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7 says this, For thou, Israel, okay, art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the, love, the Lord loved you 
And because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We think about God's purposes. God's purposes are saving purposes. It's a saving purpose, to save a people for his name. He brings Israel out of Egypt, and he enters into a covenant with them, and he is their God, and they are his people. And notice the fact, the people whom he hath chosen. Israel did not choose God. God chose Israel. There's not, there wasn't a line outside God's office of people signing up for this position. God just unilaterally says, Israel is going to be my chosen nation. Now, what's interesting as we come to the New Testament, what does this look like on the other side of the cross? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, takes this language and says, what was true of them then is true of Christians now. 1 Peter 2, 9 says this to, to Christians. You are a chosen generation. Same kind of language as we had in, in Psalm 33. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a peculiar people. That's a purchased people, that you should show forth the praise of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So who's this nation that is this chosen, blessed nation whose God is the Lord? The church of Jesus Christ, Uh, a, a, a transnational, international body of people who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the holy nation. That's the people who are blessed whose God is the Lord. Now, where does that leave Israel? Because this is big in the news right now of, of Israel and the land and and all of these things. Romans 11 tells us very, very clearly that God is not done with Israel. Even though this prerogative of being the people of God is enjoyed by the church, God one day is going to bring Israel back into this relationship. Listen to Romans 11, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part... Is happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. In the verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God has made promises to Israel that God will fulfill to Israel. And we look for him to do that one day. It's going to happen when they look upon him whom they have pierced. It will happen when the Lord Jesus comes back and there is a general conversion of Israel and they will again be that nation. Psalm 33, 12 talks about whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance when they put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's my point. We praise God for his purposes. You you look at that and you're like, "My, my head is spinning. The nations have all their purposes, and God overrides them, and God does whatever he wants in heaven and earth, and nobody stops him. And by the way, if you want to see a great illustration, read about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, where God has to humble Nebuchadnezzar. God's doing whatever he wants on the chessboard of human history. And the people that he's chosen, Israel, and us today who have been chosen by his grace and one day bringing Israel back in, you're like, this is, this is just mind-blowing. What do we do? Praise God for his purposes. Praise him for those purposes. Even when we don't fully understand him, even when there's details of his plans that we don't fully grasp, even when things happen, and perhaps especially when things happen, that we're like, God, I'm just not seeing what you're doing right now in my life. I'm begging you and praying for you to answer this prayer in this way, and you you don't see fit to do that. Whatever my God ordains is right. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to praise him. 
And we come on to a fourth reason why we should praise God, and it is his providence. Verse 13, the Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. A couple of things to draw out from these three verses. Notice the repetition of the, this idea of God seeing, God looking, God gazing. Don't think of this, however, as God sort of as a passive spectator watching things happening. Like there he is peering over heaven and be like, oh yeah, I see what those little people, there's the church, there's the steeple, open the doors, see all the people down there in Cloverleaf Baptist Church. It's not God sort of passively watching like a movie. But later on we see down in verse 18, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him. Verse 19, to deliver their soul from death. Think of it this way, when, 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 um, when someone asks you to do something, you say, yep, I'll see to it that it happens. I'll see to it that it happens. That's the force of this here is God saying, I will see to it that my will and my purposes are fulfilled. It's not God simply sort of watching, but God seeing to it that his will is accomplished. So he looks from heaven, the place of his habitation. The idea is his throne, he is ruling as king. He is carrying out his will as king. Within his gaze, all the sons of men, literally all the sons of Adam, all the sons of Adam are, are within his gaze, within his rule. There's not sort of parts of the world that God's like, I'm not really worried about what happens over there. But everything that happens, any place in the globe, he looks from the place of his habitation upon all the inhabitants of the earth. Good reminder for us, we are just sons of Adam and just inhabitants of earth. We, 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 we're mortal. We're, we're clay that God has formed, breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. In and of ourselves, we don't actually matter. We only matter because God says that we matter. Verse 15, he fashions their hearts alike. The image here is clay, God molding clay. The idea of alike is together. He puts our hearts together. You ever wonder why each of us are so unique? Let's kind of look around the room, and you can see, if you just want to say, like, look at noses. Like, there's all these different shapes on noses or ears. Or fingerprints, or what, you, what, your, what your iris looks like, or DNA, or even down to things that some people like and some people dislike. Like some people like one style of music and some like others, and some people like green beans and other people can't stand it, and all of these different tastes and, and, and all the uniqueness that we have. It's God's the one who formed our hearts uniquely and individually. You sort of make, get a cookie cutter and be like, start pressing out people who all look exactly. No, he made us all different. And, and to his glory, to his glory, because God himself is such a rich and diverse God, he creates a rich tapestry of different kinds of people to worship and to praise him. So we see God's providence as king and God's providence as creator. But this might be a troubling thought. God's knowledge is absolute and perfect. You know, some things that you go through life, you're like, man, I hope no one else ever knows about fill in the blank. And I hope no one heard that argument I, you know, I had with my spouse yesterday. Man, I hope no one in the grocery store sort of noticed how I reacted in anger to my kid. Or I hope no one, no one can sort of catch on to the thoughts that are running through my mind and the anger that is in my heart. This verse is telling us something that could be very, very troubling. God knows and sees and understands every single part of us. 
And the things that we, we would rather have lie hidden from other people's eyes are not hidden from his eyes. I think that would, this is a call for us to, to really be honest with God. And if you're not a believer in him, just quit playing games and trying to think that you can fool God. You cannot. But the other side of the coin is this is a great comfort. You say, man, nobody, nobody sees or recognizes the, the suffering that I endure patiently to the glory of God. Nobody sees the little acts of kindness and sacrifice and the days that I pray, the times that I read the Bible. There's no acknowledgement from people. There's also a God in heaven who sees and acknowledges and will reward every act of service done to his glory. We praise God for this perfect knowledge, this perfect providence over everything. But finally, we praise God for his deliverance, for his protection, for his salvation. This comes in the final part of the psalm. There's no king saved. Notice that word saved. By the multitude of an host, a mighty man is not delivered. Same idea. By much strength. The horse is a vain thing for, for safety, for, for deliverance. Neither shall, any, shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold. Okay, so in other words, all, of human, all human efforts cannot save or deliver us from even a battle. How much less can they deliver us from judgment day? Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. Get two things put side by side here. Man's inability to save and deliver himself, completely unable. You think even a, a king with his big army and the warriors with all of their training and skill and equipment and having the horses, which would be the tank, the M1 Abrams of the ancient world, you can have the best weaponry and the biggest army and the best leadership. And he says it is, it is a lie to depend on it. That's that word vain. It is a lie. You think that's going to deliver you? All of our efforts, all of our ability, all of our, our choices, all of our will, all of our attempts to, to save ourselves cannot do it. We are powerless to affect our own salvation. And I'm thinking here especially of our salvation from sin. We can never keep God's law perfectly. We can never do enough to atone for our sin. We can never erase the wrong that we have done. How does it come? The eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him to deliver their soul from death. The only way we can be delivered and saved is by the grace and the power of God. Now notice the quality of those God delivers those who fear him and those who trust in his mercy. You want to be delivered? It's not those who are strong, not those who are working hard. It's not those who, who try to achieve, but those who simply say, God, I trust you. That's why verse 20 to 22 ends with a prayer of trust. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. Like, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my own ability. I'm trusting in God, for he is our help and shield. He is the one who delivers. He, Jesus is the one who died on the cross and rose again for our sins. So trust in him. Our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope. There's another faith word, as we hope in thee. We can't save ourselves. Only God can save us. And our only right response is to trust him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. If you're here today and you're like, I don't know if my sins are forgiven. I have a relationship with God. You can't save yourself. Only God can save you. And he's done it by sending Jesus to die on the cross. And your response is to turn away from your sin. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from trying to do it on your own. 
and trust in Jesus. That's our response to all of this. So why should you and I worship? Why should you make it a point to say, I'm going to come to church every single Sunday to gather with God's people? Why should I open God's word on my own every day and have a time of worship with him? Why should, I, why should we bother singing and reading and praying and meditating and bowing ourselves before God? Well, very simply, God is worthy of our worship. He is deserving of our praise. We worship God because of his perfection. We worship God because of his power. We worship God because of his purposes and his plans. We praise him for his perfect providence. We praise and worship him because of his protection, his deliverance. He's given us through Christ. Father, would you ignite our hearts with praise and devotion and affection?